Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. This podcast will mostly be about the British election and Jeremy Corbyn and the lessons it does or does not hold for the 2020 presidential election in the U.S. But first, it will be about political descriptors, terms that are meaningless and yet thrown about every single day, left, right, and most of all, center. William Butler Yeats, The Second Coming, read by Cyril Cusick. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. What is the center? Where is it? Like Gates's falcon, gaining altitude, going in widening circles to increase the potential food targets to be found in its field of vision, we lose sight of the midpoint, the point of balance. Our perception of it changes as the picture of the terrain underneath us widens. A less poetic way of looking at left, right, center, but one that I think is more accurate for history is this. Mankind's progress through history is like a drunk finding his way home at closing time. He lurches right, then left, all the time convinced he's walking a straight down the middle line. Where is the center, the middle line, in American or British politics today? When I was a teenager in 1960s America, the political middle was in a very different location. The New Deal dispensation was still in place. The idea of finally backing up the original civil rights acts of the post-Civil War Reconstruction era with new ones guaranteeing African Americans their voting rights, among other things, was entirely mainstream. The center, except among white politicians in the old Confederacy, and I emphasize politicians because college football and basketball coaches at formerly segregated Southern universities led a rush to recruit black athletes, Winning is not right or left. Wanting to win is as centrist a position as you can hold. Anyway, as I said, the center, except among white politicians in the old Confederacy, was in civil rights and completing the New Deal project. This lasted into the 1970s. Richard Nixon, not Lyndon Johnson, signed the statutes that put affirmative action into place and Title IX, which extended civil rights into guarantees for women's participation in the workplace and critically at university. You know that killer women's World Cup team, America Fields, Megan Rapinoe and all? Title IX athletes. The interesting thing about the Civil Rights Acts is that 20 years earlier, they were not the center. At the 1948 Democratic National Convention, Hubert Humphrey, then Minneapolis's mayor, urged the adoption of a very strong civil rights commitment in the party's platform. It precipitated a walkout by Southerners. Even a decade later, civil rights was not really in the center yet. One of the great passages of Robert Caro's multi-volume biography of Lyndon Johnson describes an attempt to get the Civil Rights Bill of 1957 through the Senate. The bill can charitably be described as baby steps towards true equality of citizenship for blacks. But when the middle shifted, after the assassination of President Kennedy and after Democrats finally understood the white South could not ever be reconciled to black rights, civil rights became the center. It didn't last. The center can never hold. 
America lurched right when it elected Ronald Reagan, with his speeches on states' rights at the Neshoba County Fair in Mississippi, not five miles from where three civil rights workers had been shot and buried, still breathing in an earthen dam, and his made-up welfare queens driving to collect their welfare checks in Cadillacs. You didn't think Donald Trump was the first person to gain the presidency by telling rancid racist lies, did you? It was not a dissimilar story in Britain during this period. The post-war social democratic dispensation created the welfare state. The centerpiece was the National Health Service and a state pension, social security, in other words. No party would change that. As the 60s bled into the 70s and the conservatives replaced labor, the middle ground was the same for both parties. The Tory education secretary, Margaret Thatcher, carried on Labour's policy of shutting down grammar schools, which were seen as elitist. That was where the centre was. Thatcher became prime minister the year before Reagan was elected president. The centre in Anglo-America shifted to the right, and then further to the right, and then further to the right. And the middle drifted rightward as well. In the 1990s, Bill Clinton and Tony Blair were elected by accepting the new location of the middle, which bore no comparison to where it was in the 1960s. I am midway between the two men in age. We grew up in the same New Deal post-war dispensation. I understand completely why voters on the left, progressive, Democrat, Labour side voted for them, despite being aware that in many ways Clinton and Blair's worldview had more in common with the Republicans and Tories of the 1960s. Voting for them felt like the first step in pulling things back towards where the middle was, circa 1965. It never happened. One of the underpinnings of the 1960s center ground was an understanding that the financial industry had to be tightly regulated. It grew out of the experience of the Great Depression. Clinton undid the key regulation from that era, the Glass-Steagall Act. The consequences were inevitable. The crashing and burning of Anglo-America and the world's economy. A perfect moment for society to swing back to the left. The middle, in theory, should have shifted. But now, let's talk about the British election and what, if any, lessons can be drawn from it for the presidential election in 2020. Throughout the four-decade-long lurch to the right, Labour's Jeremy Corbyn stayed in place in a far left in the 1970s dream world, which I know very well. We also are of an age. Corbyn is only a year older than I am. I recognize his worldview. No private ownership of enterprises, nationalize everything, a blind acceptance of all trade union activity, a strong belief that Zionism is a European colonialist enterprise and that it is inherently racist since it comes at the expense of Palestinians. I heard the same broad opinions at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio, back in 1970. The closeness of Anglo-American politics reflects a mindset not a similarity of electoral systems. In Britain's antiquated first-past-the-post system, the party that gains the most seats in Parliament becomes the government. Its leader becomes prime minister. There's no separate election for the executive. Because of the way constituency boundaries are drawn, very few parliamentary seats are competitive. The most important election most MPs face is the meeting of the local party branch where they are selected as a candidate. 
For Corbyn, his most important election was in 1983, when he was selected to represent the constituency of Islington North. Islington North first elected a Labour MP in 1937 and had gone Labour in every election since. It was a very safe Labour seat. In his safe seat, Corbyn was able to settle into a career as a serial dissenter within his own party, safely tucked onto the back benches. He was immune from the tides that shifted the centre rightwards. Then, following Labour's defeat in the 2015 election, the party's leader, Ed Miliband, resigned, and a leadership contest was held. At the last moment, Corbyn's name was added to the list of nominees for the post. He hadn't campaigned to be leader. His name went forward as a gesture of inclusion for the party's far left. Gesture of inclusion. Is there a more liberal thing? While the liberals were hoist by their own petard in this case, a party rules change meant the Labour membership chose the leader. One member, one vote. In the previous system, Labour's MPs' preferences were counted separately and given more weight. New members from the fringe left joined the party in 2015 for the first time to vote for Corbyn, and he won in a landslide. And in leadership, behaved exactly as he had as a backbencher. Stubborn, small-minded, immune to the realities of the shifting center. From the moment he was elected, Labour's crushing defeat this week was a chronicle of a death foretold. Now, does this tell us anything about democratic politics for 2020? Clearly, the New York Times opinion staff thinks so. Within 24 hours, two of their staffers had cranked out pieces saying Corbyn's crushing defeat is proof the Democrats must nominate a centrist not Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, as if there is a comparison between Corbyn and the two Democrats. Let's look at the case of Bernie Sanders versus Corbyn first. Both come from the left of their parties, but does left mean the same in the U.S. and U.K.? Corbyn's political career has been spent in a safe seat, where he was under no pressure to change a view or persuade those who disagreed with him. Sanders is different. A Brooklyn Jewish socialist moves to Vermont in the early 70s when the state was reliably Republican and Jews were as rare as pork knuckles on a kosher delicatessen menu. During the course of a decade, Sanders gets beaten in elections and learns how to argue and persuade and maintain a sense of authenticity. Then he gets elected mayor of Burlington, succeeds, moves on to Congress running as a socialist. He jettisons the label of socialist for independent when he runs for Senate, caucuses with the Democrats, accepts politics as the art of the possible, unlike Corbyn, who has never had to persuade anyone or negotiate and give way tactically to move towards a strategic goal. Elizabeth Warren's story is not dissimilar, but traveling in the other direction, from a Republican lower-middle-class background to a place on what is still called the left by mainstream opinion writers. Both Sanders and Warren are spiky and distrust the press, are grumpy with them, which may explain why neither gets much help from the mainstream media. It's odd. Most of those who report or comment on politics at elite levels will approvingly quote Richard Nixon's advice to aspiring Republican candidates, run as far to the right as you need to get the Republican nomination, and then run as fast as you can back to the center in order to win the general election. Somehow, they don't expect Democratic candidates to do the same, except running to the left to get the nomination before running back to the center. 
But I think that the main reason the press can't get to grips with Warren and Sanders is that the center is shifting back towards where it was when I was growing up, and inside their institutions they have yet to feel that shift. To go back to the beginning, in my growing up years, the New Deal dispensation was the center ground. The main unfinished business of the New Deal was a guarantee of health care for every American. Even Richard Nixon knew he signed the bill creating HMOs, a first step towards making health care affordable for all Americans. My first grown-up job after college was organizing a series of testimony-gathering conferences in Pennsylvania. The information collected was supposed to be used to organize HMOs in the state. Health care for all. Once a centrist position was left behind in the great rightward lurch that began with Ronald Reagan, the 2009 fight to pass the Affordable Care Act was a lead indicator that society was lurching back to the left. The center was shifting. Bernie Sanders' out-of-the-blue challenge to Hillary Clinton was further proof. And just as an aside, in 2016, Slate ran an interview with Sanders' older brother Larry, who is a Green Party politician here in England. Larry Sanders said the only reason Bernie got in the race was that Elizabeth Warren refused to challenge Clinton. He felt that in the primary, someone had to represent the Democratic Party's New Deal wing. And isn't that more accurate than left wing, the New Deal wing? He did not succeed in getting the nomination, but he completely redefined the terms of discussion within the Democratic Party. The center shifts and can be shifted back. Warren and Sanders and their supporters know that. For Corbyn, the center never existed, and that's why he was crushed. And that's why there is really no comparison between what happened to Labour on December 12, 2019, and what might happen in America in November 2020. Anyway, nice to think, as I slip into deep middle age, that the center is returning to where it was in those golden days of my youth. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more, lots more, at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. Please visit, and while you're there, make a donation. More and more people are to keep the podcast coming.